Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the 28th Fireside Chat. It's Sunday, the 2nd of October, 2016. Good afternoon, Tom. Um, firstly, just like to say how saddened we were by your news this week about losing Strider um, to cancer. That was very, very sad. Just as other yeah. people have started noticing, you know, him barking in the background and you, you you're silencing him. Yeah, he will be uh, dearly missed. It was very sudden. The time we first got inkling that he had some problem to the time when he was gone was probably a little less than a week. Wow. Now that is quick. That I guess that's that's good in a way that he went very quickly. But uh, he was. He was a gentle giant, and uh, he will be missed yeah. very much. Right, um, Tom, let's get on with it. Uh, straight in with it. Uh, Tim is going to have a, a, a question for you, which is about his sugar-free diet. And Tim, you're looking really good on it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I hope it's not uh, too boring for the other people here because it's uh, purely personal. So I'll begin. Um, for more than a year now, I cut out sugar and white flour products completely out of my diet. My basic diet is similar to yours. I eat vegetable bean soup and drink a liter of green smoothie every day. The difference is that I eat a lot more than you. The first months I ate additionally a whole lot of black natural rice and oat flakes, which are high in slow digesting carbohydrate hydrates. Big mistake as I know now. I did it because I lost weight so fast that I thought I have to eat such an amount of food to stop it. Even after this time, I eat a lot compared to you. Sometimes I eat the soup three times a day, plus a smoothie, plus nuts, pl uh, plus nuts between the meals. To cut a long story short, I switched some things over the time, and now my diet looks like the following. I eat bean soup two times a day. Two times a day, I eat 200 to grams of plain soy yogurt, mostly with a kiwi or some berries, soy flakes, and some coconut grating. Between these meals, I eat maybe one or two apples and sometimes nuts. But I can easy be, it can easily be 200 grams of nuts. I try to let minimum two hours between my main meals. So two to three hours lay normally between them. I avoid fruits that are high in sugar like pineapple, white bananas or grapes. And when I eat fruits like this, I do it in very small amounts. Sometimes I eat a few teaspoons of peanut mush instead of nuts. And the only sweet I consume often is a tea with liquorice root in it. My problem is that I still do not feel any difference at all relating to consciousness. I don't feel more clear or anything else. It is like it has no effect to me. The only effect I feel is a better resistance towards illnesses, which is good. <laughs> That's good, but it wasn't the goal for me. I mainly started with the whole thing because of the advantages for meditation. After a year now, it really starts to frustrate me. I don't know if I do anything wrong or if it isn't possible for me to get into the state you describe. And the problem is that I cannot taste what I can eat because I do not feel any difference. For example, I tried a can of grain coffee a few weeks ago and I also tried a can of decaffeinated instant coffee, but I stopped it because I'm not sure if I can if I can consume it without influencing me. Same with some other foods. I don't drink alcohol, I don't drink coffee, I don't smoke cigarettes and I do not eat any sugar at all. Maybe you can say uh, what the problem is, or maybe you can uh, diagnose a little bit what's wrong with me or not. Okay. Uh, first, I'd like to ask you, uh, how satisfied are you with your weight? With all those calories uh, and carbohydrates you're taking in, is, is your weight good? 
uh, I I don't eat um, uh, things with high um, carbohydrates in it now. So uh, okay. this is actually over. So I'm now um, my weight now is is about seventy kilograms. And uh, I, I have to say, um, a few years ago, I was uh, training uh, very hard and did fitness and um, ate um, protein and these things. And I weighed a lot more than now, so 10 to 15 kilograms. So that's a lot. So the people now seeing me look and say, oh, you look ill and uh, because they, they know me. With a lot more. So how do, how do you I'm, feel? Uh, I feel good now. I feel good. I I know I look a little bit uh, thin in the face, but uh, for me it's okay. Before I was uh, training a lot, uh, it was the same to me. Okay. I feel good. So, so you, have, you, have good, good. you have good energy? <laughs> it's hardly to hard to say for me so i i would say i um have a bad uh, body feeling you know it's uh, it's hard for me to say something is good or or bad um it always has to be a a big effect for me to recognize it so okay. i would say it's it's like uh, before now, one of the one of the things that happens a lot when people go off sugar is that the going off sugar is a fairly lengthy process before it goes out of your body and you have to not eat sugar for a fairly long time, which means that it's a very slow change and they don't notice the slow change. Typically, when they where they become aware of the dramatic change that's taken place uh, in their amount of their clarity is when they make a mistake and eat sugar, when they end up eating something that has, you know, a very fast digesting carbohydrate in it, when they, when they get some sugar. And suddenly everything goes cloudy and they realize then that that's the way they used to be all the time. And just the slow getting off of it, uh, they didn't notice the change because it was so gradual. So have you had any opportunities to... Uh, Make that kind of mistake and eat sugar and see what you know see what the difference is then it may be dramatic enough at that point happening all at once that you would uh, that you would notice it okay, so uh, I should eat a snickers <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you, do, if you do that just as a test, you know if you eat some sugar just as a test. And you find a dramatic difference in your in your mental ability and in your clarity and your ability to function, then it is working and it has been working. It just was so slow that you didn't notice it. That's that's yeah. one thing. To, that, that's one thing to think about. Uh, I hear that a lot with people who say they didn't notice any difference until, you know, they they uh, by accident ingested some sugar. And it doesn't have to be a lot. You wouldn't have to eat a whole Snickers bar. Just one bite would make a difference. You know, just even one small bite you would notice. So it's not like you have to eat the whole thing. But so that would be one thing to try. Actually have some sugar and and see the difference between the way you react to that now and the way 
you know, that, uh, uh, you know, you felt just before. And it won't take long. Again, if you take a bite of, of that Snickers bar, you should feel the difference, you know, within a minute, two minutes at the outside. In other words, it's, it's pretty fast and it's fairly dramatic. So that would be a test to take. If you're happy with your weight, you don't feel too, too uh, heavy or too thin, then what you're doing sounds like it's, it's pretty good. That's a whole lot more than I eat, but then I'm seven, almost 72, and uh, you're not quite that old. Your metabolism is probably running a lot faster than mine, and you need a lot more calories than I do. So that's not surprising that you, that you eat a whole lot more. Um, yeah, you, so I'm glad you did find out that all the carbohydrates were a little too much, and it sounded at first there that you were overdoing the carbohydrates, but now you have that kind of under control. So your diet sounds really good. I wouldn't say that you have to do anything too different uh, about it. Do that sugar test and see if there isn't a dramatic difference between before and after when you do that. I think that's probably what's going on, that it's been such a slow change over, what, six months to a year that you really don't notice too much. And how's your meditation been? Has your meditation been any different? Can you tell? Or has that change been happening also so slow that you don't that you don't notice it? Uh, there's no change in meditation. That's a, that's a big problem with it. And for me, it's like, uh, like I told, uh, I, I drink this tea with liquorice root in it. And in my opinion, it, it shouldn't do anything uh, with my body. But because I don't recognize any difference, I'm, uh, I begin to think of it, or oh, maybe, maybe it's the liquorice root uh, or something else that I uh, don't see. Well, that's the next thing for you to do is as if, if you think there are particular things that are maybe causing a problem or things that aren't working for you, then one at a time, take something out of your diet. It sounds like your diet's pretty pretty full now, so just take something out of it. Take the tea out, and take the tea out for, say, a week. Note if there's any difference. Then put the tea back. Notice if there's any difference. Then take something else out if you're not maybe quite so sure of whether it's a good thing or not. Take it out for a week, and then put it back in after a week of not having it, and see if you can't find if there is some sort of food that is you know, making a big difference for you. And you can do this with, with all the, you know, with all the foods, including the, you know, the uh, fruit and, and the green smoothie and everything. Just take things out one at a time for a week and then put them back in and notice the, the difference. That way it'll enable you to find more subtle things that may be happening in your diet. Other than that, it, um, It surprises me that you haven't noticed a, a, a change in your meditation. Most people do. That's one of the places where the clarity tends to show up a lot, that you don't. I don't know. I don't know why that would be. Um, if you were very, um, if you have a hard time relaxing, if you have a hard time uh, you know, focusing and, and letting go, then that may be something else. It's kind of overriding the, you know, the effects that sugar might have. In other words, there are some people who seem to be very, um, 
hard for them to just kind of let go of things. I think sometimes they call that, they call that ADD, you know, people who are just kind of always on, you know, they, they have a hard time turning off that intellect. And if that were a problem of yours, then, uh, uh, the food may or may not be able to fix that. That probably comes from other sources, you know, and, and without the sugar, you may still be that way. So your, your meditation still may be difficult, but still the clarity of clarity of mind should change. So try that, uh, eat some sugar, see what happens test. See if you feel a dramatic difference and, um, get yourself first in a, in a meditation state, or at least just a quiet state where you can really pay attention to what your body feels like and what your mind feels like. And then while you're in that state, you know, you can then take, take this bite of your Snickers and uh, see what happens, see what the changes are. So that would be, I think that'd be the first test I'd like to see before we maybe explore other things that it might be. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, Snickers, you know, you're not you when you're hungry. Americans won't understand that. The rest of you will not understand that at all. Um, and sugar, you know, our, our famous uh, enemy of consciousness, very cloudy there. For those of you who do want to know more about the perils of sugar, you really should check out that sugar film by Damon Gamo. Uh, you may just recognize one of the people who uh, chimes in with a little bit of info in that movie. So uh, moving on, Tom, Mikhail Grushka over in Poland has a question. Uh, we touched on this briefly several months ago, but we're going to ask it again today in depth because we really didn't get around to ask, ask answering the question properly. It's about karma, um, and he writes as follows. For millennia, the spiritual explanation of why things happen to us the way they do happen was always the concept of karma. Basically, you reap what you sow, and the cause and effect extend beyond this one lifetime. Well, that sounds fair. Recently, starting somewhere in the last century, when all channelings started to happen, we were introduced to a new model known as the law of attraction that is now beloved by the new ages everywhere. You get what you are right now. The world reflects your inner state, so it's not really a matter of karma anymore. It's more a matter of digging to reach your subconscious beliefs and change them for what you prefer. And then the universe has no choice but to reflect this and give it to you. Well, doesn't that just sound beautiful? Well... Now, it, well, it kind of does, if only it were true. Um, now we have Tom Campbell, who presents his logically sound model, which says that we're in a multiplayer game, and while some manipulation of probability can take place, a lot of what happens to us is simply, simply random due to the nature of this virtual reality. Other players, just like us, have free will. They act, and things happen. Now, I don't attract a car accident, but neither was it karma. It was just another irresponsible player who decided to drive after a couple of beers. So that also sounds logical. Assuming then that MBT is the closest to the truth so far, how come these supposedly highly evolved beings presented inaccurate models like karma or law of attraction previously? I can imagine that the human incarnations like Buddha or Krishna just maybe misunderstood it. But how come those that those beings that offer their knowledge through channeling, who reside in MPMR permanently and have clear access to their incarnations in the databases, got it so wrong. I know this is a long question, but I wanted to make sure that it was clear enough exactly what I was asking. Okay, uh, so let's talk about the two issues of uh, karma and law of attraction. Now, uh, MBT doesn't uh, throw uh, both of those out as being ridiculous. It basically looks at them and says that uh, there is some um, 
some truth behind them, but the truth is often overdone and uh, uh, developed into something a little more than what's what's really there. So let's look at those two. Um, well, well, we'll take them in order, I guess, that you brought them up. Uh, karma is the idea that you uh, kind of get what you need and deserve. You, uh, you know, have been a bad boy this time. Well, next time you'll need to, you know, kind of pay that back. You will have to outgrow that situation. You were uh, uh, maybe very hostile to certain sorts of people, and now maybe those people will need to be hostile to you. So it's like you, you know, what you give, you get back, and that is kind of an over, an overdone version of the way karma really works. the The basis behind karma, which the sages did understand, and I ex- expect they reported that very accurately. But then people, you know, take that and add a little bit more to it. And, uh, you know, pretty soon you've got an idea that's grown and, and is more uh, to people's liking and so on. So I believe that's really the difference between myself and the, and the, uh, the people of the past that you, that you talk about. So what is this karma? Well, karma at its root is basically you're here to learn and to grow up. You don't pass, you don't get to the next level until you pass the one you're at. So if you don't do well, you get to do it again. So if, uh, you know, anger is your problem, then you get to work on that until it's no longer your problem. If greed is your problem or any other such thing, power is your problem, then you get to work on that until you get past it, until you overcome it, until you outgrow it. So in that sense, the things that you don't do right or the, or the opportunities you fail to, to grab and grasp in one lifetime come back and you get another opportunity next time. But it won't necessarily be the same thing or even in the same context. It's just another opportunity to learn that same lesson. And typically the context changes because as the context changes, you, you approach it fresh and it's, it's like all new, even though the context is the same thing. So that's really the, the fundamentals of karma is that you keep working on your lessons until you get them. And if you don't learn them, you get to do them again and so on. If you still don't learn them, you still get to do them again. It's not a time test. You can take as long as you need before you get them. And until you do, you will repeat the same sorts of errors and problems and make the same sort of poor choices over and over again. So karma really means learn it now or learn it later, but you know, you don't pass go, you don't uh, grow up, you don't uh, increase the quality of your consciousness until you do pass the lesson, until you get it, until you change who you are at the being level, get rid of that fear that ego and belief. So that's really what karma is. So I suspect uh, the uh, sages have passed, uh, passed that message along. And for some people, it got down to the point of, you know, you murdered somebody today and, you know, or this lifetime and next lifetime, somebody will murder you, you know, in exactly the same way and exact opposite you, you, uh, you know, reap what you sow and what you do that's bad will be will happen to you next time. It's not that simplified and it's not that 
that uh, it's not that way. That's kind of new age karma, but it doesn't really work that way. It's just a matter you don't get a free pass. Now, as far as the law of attraction goes, it's, you know, there, there's truth to that as well, because as you mentioned, you do get to modify probability with your intent. And you have a lot of people modifying probability with their intent. And sometimes those modifications conflict with each other. Okay? And all that then has to be worked out. And because you have all of these conflicting desires, both from the fear, the ego, the beliefs, and the intent moving probability, that creates what is not precisely random by the definition of random that, that produces a lot of interaction that just is hard to tell because everybody's got free will so it's not in a in a strict way it's not random it's just unpredictable uh, things happen people exercise their free will and we live in this interactive world with seven and a half billion people all exercising their free will so there's a lot of things that just happen that we have to deal with that, um, you know, they're not part of some grand master plan. In other words, our lives are not uh, predestined. We don't have master plans that everything that's going to happen to us has somehow been mapped out ahead of time. It's not like that. We're here and we interact. We deal with what happens to us. And a lot of that happens just because of, you know, where we are and, and uh, what everybody else around us is doing. We just get swept into things and we get things that we have to react to. And that's good because there's a lot more learning in that sort of spontaneous interaction than there would be in a plan. A plan can't plan for everything and for all these interactions. It would be a very constraining thing if we had those kinds of plans. So the law of attraction is correct in that if you use your intent and you focus that intent on something, and particularly if that something is on your path to growing up, then it tends to manifest for you. If, if what it is you're using your intent for is to exercise your greed or your want to control other people or that sort of thing, then generally, you know, that is a, that's a weak, um, a weak driver and those sorts of things particularly on a grand scale, are just unlikely to happen because there's a lot of other people that also have intents and they don't want to be used for your, for your scheme or your plan. So it just doesn't, it doesn't work out. Okay, so both things, the law of attraction and karma, have some fundamental truth behind them. We can affect the things that happen to us. Now, the thing that maybe confuses you is that there are situations where um, things happen with other people that are kind of set up because the system wants you to succeed. The system wants you to grow up and it gives you every opportunity. So if there is somebody, uh, you know, like you mentioned a driver, if there's some driver there and for some reason uh, they swerve in front of you or whatever, and it's going to teach you a lesson in kind of accepting that there are poor drivers on the road and not it's all about you and not lose your cool and get mad and, and uh, you know, let your ego get wound up over that, uh, that rude behavior on the road, then that car might just do that 
just to give you that lesson. So it doesn't say that all your interactions have to be entirely just random things. The system can nudge other people's actions, your actions, events in a way to provide the learning of everybody. So the guy who was driving that car that suddenly kind of lapses for a second or, you know, whose arm twitches for a, for a microsecond that uh, swerves like that, you know, they learn something too, like to pay more attention, you know, to stay alert, uh, to uh, slow down or be more careful. So there's a lesson in that for them as well. And maybe paying attention is one of the lessons they need to learn. They have a tendency to drift off perhaps. So now the system sees here's a win-win. Everybody's got an opportunity to reach out and, and make a better choice. So those things then will, will play together. So it's not that there is never any um, kind of arranged experiences for you to uh, optimize your learning. That will happen some, particularly if you're very uh, much interested in learning and you're on a growth path and you are the kind of person who will learn from uh, those kind of opportunities, then the system goes more out of its way to create those opportunities for you, just the things that you need. A lot of that is called synchronicity, where things just happen for no apparent reason other than they just do, and they're very important to you. You learn from them. It's kind of just the right challenge or just the right information at just the right time. So that also is part of your life besides the the idea that uh, you can modify future probability with your intent and that you you know have to learn your lessons no you know for for as long as it takes you to learn them you'll still get that same lesson over and over again in many different contexts and ways so there's i don't think there's a real conflict between me and MBT and, and the uh, wisdom out of the past, I think they all go together very well. But I think a lot of people have turned these little pieces of wisdom into something really different than they are. The yeah. idea that you can create, you know, wealth and a new Mercedes Benz in your driveway if you just put your mind to it is not exactly, you know, the way the system is built to work. Now, yes, you can influence things with your intent, even things that are of bad intent. Intent modifies future probability. And if it's a, if it's a, a nasty intent, that modifies future probability too. But it also has to wrestle with all those intents that don't want that nastiness to happen. And it depends on how strong your intent is versus other people's intents. There's a lot of things in the, in the mix. And uh, everybody doesn't, uh, have the same amount of influence over future probability with their intent because everybody doesn't focus as much, doesn't have the clear, uh, clear uh, clarity to their thoughts. They have jumbled thoughts. Uh, they can't stay focused very long or they have, um, you know, they're not working from their being level. They're working out of their intellectual level. They intellectually want wealth and a Mercedes in the driveway. And as much as they wish for that, that doesn't really do a whole lot of good because it's not like throwing pennies in the wishing well and then making a wish. That isn't the thing. That's a very weak intent that's mostly from the intellect and doesn't do very much. So the New Agers take a, a, an idea that has truth at the root of it and often turn it into something that's a little more glamorous and a little more you know, sexy for uh, you know, 
marketing consumption and so on. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's got fundamental truth there, but it's, it's not quite as simple as, uh, the new agers would make it sound. So I hope that answers, answers the question. So there are those things, they do exist and I don't deny either one of them. Um, but, uh, you have to understand, you know, kind of the root cause and where they come from. And yes, sometimes there is synchronicity where things happen kind of just for you. That's because you're at a point in your life where you can take those things and learn from them. Now, if you can't, if you're one of these people who are clueless and things would happen just for you, well, you just uh, ignore it and, you know, wouldn't, would not reach out and grab that opportunity, then synchronicity hardly ever happens to you. You'd swear that it doesn't happen at all to anybody because it's never happened to you. So that's the difference. It's whether or not you're ready to whether or not you get these, these sorts of things. But everything that happens to you isn't part of synchronicity. There's just a lot of stuff that just happens because the guy next to you wasn't paying attention while he was driving a car and he swerves in front of you. And it wasn't really a lesson for anybody as far as it's planned. But fortunately, you can make a lesson out of almost everything. So all of those things that do happen to you, whatever the source, are things for you to learn, things for you to think about. What can I learn from this situation? That should be the way you approach everything that happens in your life. Well, that makes sense, Tom. You know, with that law of attraction thing, obviously the system wants people to improve, to grow up, um, to learn. So if you do want something that is is, is really ego-driven and you, you, you-driven, you're not going to get it, right? You, 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 it's got to be something that yeah. you want that it, but people don't want that, do they? They want the simple fixes. They want the, the, the glamour, the wealth, and the trappings. Yeah, well, it's not that you that you won't get it. It's possible if you put enough energy into things that you can you can make things happen. So it's not that it's impossible to get them. It's just a, it's just harder because you have a lot of other people that aren't really interested in your plan. You know, in in your dream of that new Mercedes and the you know and and the mansion on the hill. So it's not like that the system will will uh, go out of its way to help create that unless they do because it's a lesson. And you find out that all that stuff really doesn't make you happy, doesn't mean anything, isn't important. And if that's a lesson of yours, okay, you thought if you were wealthy, you'd be happy. Here's a whole lot of wealth. Now, how happy are you? You see, it could happen just as a, as a lesson in that sense. So the system is, is, you know, it's the way the system works. The system is, does not really manipulate everything. So you can use your intent to heal somebody or you can use your intent to hurt somebody. It's no harder to give somebody a headache than it is to take a headache away. You see, so it's not the, you know, it's not, it, the system is just a, a system and it works the way it works. And it's up to you to use it in a way that's profitable for yourself and for others. And as you try to push it to something that's only profitable for you, but unprofitable to others, well, those others push back with their own intents. You see, that's why it's harder to uh, use, you know, to aggrandize your ego uh, with your intent. Okay. Well, if, if the things you're trying to do are things that are really good for everybody, then it's a lot easier. You don't have so much pushback in that uh, intent versus intent world. Those things then are, and the, the system is meant as feedback so that the reality we get is mostly the reality we produce. 
So if you're not a real happy person walking around full of joy and satisfaction all the time, then that tells you you're not doing something right. You see, it's, it's part of the feedback. And when you are a person full of happiness and joy, you'll find that things just work right for you. Everything just is terrific. It falls at your feet as you need it. So, you know, it's a, it's a feedback system is really what it's there for, to show us how we're doing. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Um, I hope, Mikhail, that answers your question to your satisfaction. Uh, we're now going to go over to Sveta. Sveta, are you ready? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I just wanted to thank you, Tom, for being here. I have a little letter that I prepared already, so I'll just read it. Um, if not for you, I would not survive this time, and it's not even first time your voice saves me from deep despair. You are my 9-11. When there is nothing I can do about grief, um, I'm grieving my sister is dying. Um, and there you are, um, just a click away. And I just wanted to thank you and everybody who makes this channel possible. Because I don't think I have a question at this point. You pretty, like, I don't know how come, but mm, except for technical terms and all this quantum stuff, um, the stuff that I can apply to uh, everyday life is so simple to understand. Even so, it took me two years to study what you're saying. Um, now I'm at the point where I truly can say that it's a theory for everything. I, every question I have is answered by your theory. And if not, you, you are available here on Fireside Chat. And for that, I'm very grateful. Very grateful. Thank well, you. Thank, thank you, Saveta. That's very nice of you to say. I'm glad that, that uh, you find my words helpful. And that uh, that is my payment. That's that's what makes me happy. Is that, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, is that people find it uh, useful. That's the whole point. So that pleases me very much that it's been of value to you. Yeah, I just wanted to let uh, new people know how valuable your teachings are. Because at first, it, it took me a long time to test you. I didn't trust many things you said, and I questioned you, and I suffered a lot because I suspected some things on you because I was reflecting my shit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you very much. That's all I wanted to say. I'll have You're a welcome. question later on. You're welcome. All right. Um, from from someone who has has been watching the fireside chats and following your work for to a while, to someone who I believe is pretty new, Steve uh, Humphreys is a uh, is someone who contacted us recently, and um, he said that he just found your work fairly recently, and uh, it made a great change to him. And he had um he had he had three short questions. Um, Tom, I can either ask him to you all at once uh, as they're very short, or we can go through them one at a time. But the first one is, if everything is data, what's the point of origin and what kind of thing stores it? That's the first question. Do you want to do that one first? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand it. What's the point of origin? Yeah, if, if everything is data, why would there be an origin? Why, if it's, I think that's what he's saying is, why would there be a start? Why, why would it start if it's just data? Isn't data just there? 
Well, data has to be uh, organized. Data, if you if you figure you have, uh, if you start with random bits and no information, then to create information or data, you have to organize those bits. So there has to be an organizing force, if you will, an organizing intent, an organizing will to create data, and just any kind of data won't do. It has to be data that expresses you or data that uh, you wish to send to another. So there's, there's also direction. What's, what's the purpose of this data? You know, what is it supposed to be doing? Is it uh, informing another person? Is it you know, in, intending you know, to grow up? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to create data, and one doesn't create data unless one has a purpose for it. So the origin then would be in the purpose to answer the question, why? Why send data? Why make up data? Why bother to send it to anyone? Why communicate? You know, what's the point in any of it? And uh, then, of course, the purpose uh, in, in my uh, theory goes back to, you know, lowering entropy, growing up, evolving. That's the fundamental purpose, why things are done. And the origin is the fact that consciousness is required to do this. You know, you need data can only be interpreted, can only be read and only be transmitted through an intention to do so. So that requires consciousness. It requires the awareness. It requires an ability to, to grow. It's not just data for data's sake. So if that's what he means about, you know, the origin, and I'm not sure that's what he means, but if that's what he means, then it's, you know, you have to have a reason why, and you have to have a source to implement that reason. And that would be the, I think, what he's calling the origin. So I think so. What maybe about he'll where- get back to us. If that's, not, if that's not what he meant, maybe he'll uh, get back to us. I'm sure he'll have plenty of questions following your answers, Tom. Um, what about the, the, the kind of thing that stores that data? How, how is that data stored? Okay. Now, when we think of storage of data, you know, we have a very um, specific idea in mind. You know, ones and zeros on a hard drive, you know, and in in memory, often, uh, say, in your computer, that's in the form of transistors that are off or on. You know, a transistor off is maybe a zero and one that's on is, is one. So it's it's just some binary thing, whether it's a transistor or whether it's something else. It's just some sort of thing that can be in one of two states. So it's stored by having a bunch of these binary things and you put them in the in the in that one of one of two states in certain orders. So you make patterns of them, certain ones and zeros patterns that have meaning, that can be interpreted in terms of numbers or letters or other such things. Now that's the way we think of data and data is always stored in a uh, medium, right, made up of binary objects. Well, that's in our physical world. In consciousness, data is just stored in what we might call reality cells, you know, those original cells that could be this way or that way. And because it's non-physical to us, we can't say they take up space, that they have weight, that, uh, you know, they're manufactured, you know, all of that is like what happens in the physical world. In consciousness, it's just non-physical. It's thought, if you will, 
But in a way, that's just us trying to give it a give it a label. So we don't really know the the technology of storage and consciousness because we can't imagine a technology. It has nothing to do with space or mass or you know any uh, you know any of the things that that uh, that we can think of as far as storage media. So it's just its own. You know, it's if you will, it's stored in its mind. You know, you can you can keep things in your mind. Well, it's not necessarily that you've got uh, ones and zeros, you know, in a brain. The brain is a virtual brain. It doesn't store anything. You know, that's not the point. The brain isn't the storage media. All the storage and and, uh, and analysis is done in consciousness. The brain just sets constraints on that analysis and on that storage. So it's uh, just like it sets constraints on everything else. You know, the constraints are set by the rule set. And the rule set determines, you know, what the physical body is like. The, the rules are the rules of our biology, if you will, uh, in, this, in this case. So I'm not sure if that uh, is a good answer or not, but let's do the other one. Okay. Well, the other one, the next one is, um, we've, we've, we've talked about this a great deal, is who pushed the button. But Steve's asking the question of who pushed the button of who pushed the button. <laughs> yeah, it's the, is there an infinite regression? You see, you always get an infinite regression if you, um, um, if you have to have a cause because then what caused the cause? And then what caused the cause that caused the cause? And that becomes an infinite regression. Well, we don't go there because there's really no value in that. That's not logical. Um, it's not Real things, again, can't be infinite and they can't be, they can't exist because of an infinite regression. So that's a logical, uh, you know, not logically not useful. So we get to the point where we say that we have to realize there's a limit on our information. We are, um, you know, uh, free will awareness units operate in an avatar in a virtual reality game, and all of reality that we experience here has to do with the rule set of this virtual reality game. That's the science in our uh, in our uh, virtual world. And we have experience when we are out of body or when we are exploring with our minds. We have that set of experience as well, but those are also limited. It's... Uh, there's a limited set of things that we can experience. Now, it's always problematical to have firsthand experience of where you come from because that's where you come from and you weren't there yet, you know, before you were there. So you can't, uh, you know, you don't stand aside and watch yourself being born because you weren't born yet. So you can't be standing outside watching yourself born. So it's that kind of thing. You know, you can't have the... The, the thing that's being born already be there before it's born. Logical problem. So we don't have any information about exactly how the origin started. And that's not a failure. It's not like, well, we'll get it someday. We just haven't figured it out yet. No, that's information that's just not accessible to us. We have these limitations. We are consciousness. We can't get outside of consciousness to look back at consciousness as a, you know, kind of a, an independent thing. We're part of it. So 
that limits what we can tell about the origins of consciousness. So the best we can do is come up with a little bit of hand-waving, um, um, well, hand-waving logic, a little bit of hand-waving uh, theory that says, well, it might have happened like this. But that doesn't mean it really did happen like that. It just means that we're finding a, a way of, of uh, explaining how it might have happened. See, it's called conjecture. We can, we can have some conjecture. My conjecture is that there's a combination of cellular automata okay, and the spontaneous lowering of entropy in systems that have that potential. Okay. There's a there's a name for that. Uh, it's a it's another mathematical system like cellular automata that shows that you can, if you take a system that is basically random and has no uh, information in it, that system will spontaneously evolve structure and process. And sometimes what gets evolved then evolves more and that little bit of structure starts to evolve and become a grander or bigger or better or a more stable structure. So you can have this, this, um, and again, it's a, it's kind of a random thing. You have all this possibility. It has to have the potential to do it, but if it has the potential to do it, then just sometime, just at a random chance, all the right pieces and the right things come together to make something. And this something then can be a seed to further evolve into something else. So we know that cellular automata have the ability to, uh, to have all the capabilities that any general purpose computer can have. They have that sort of thing. Well, we're talking about consciousness as a, as a computer. And that means you have to have evolved uh, randomness. I mean, not randomness. You had to evolve awareness you know, out of one of these uh, random cellular automata that grew up to the point it became self-aware. Now, exactly how did that happen? And did that actually happen? Don't know. It's just something that we can make up. You called it a hand-waving argument or some, uh, you know, a hypothetical thing that could happen. So that's our best guess. But the real answer is don't know and can't know because it's outside of our system. So we have to learn to live gracefully with that uncertainty. We do know that it is there because conscious, we are conscious, therefore consciousness does exist. And no, it didn't exist based on an infinite regression to anything. It just self-emerged. That, that uh, science I was talking about is emergent complexity. And uh, complexity will emerge out of, out of uh, things that are not complex, that just have potential. And mathematics say that it's a long shot, but, you know, if you have enough time and there's enough random potential going on there, eventually you get a seed that'll grow. So that's where we say that consciousness most likely started. So it just started someplace out of potential. Where'd the potential come from? Well, we just don't know. And uh, again, that's not because we're ignorant. It's because we can't know. I do a, a thing in my book about a uh, bacterium in the in the gut. Can't know, you know, about sunshine and rain and plows and horses and tractor trailers and trains and all the things that end up producing and transporting food that ends up in the refrigerator belonging to the individual that has that bacterium in their stomach or in their intestines. And it can't know all of that stuff because from its viewpoint, 
none of that stuff is available to it. None of that information can get to it because it's an, it's a bacterium in your intestine. So we're sort of like that. We're kind of a, a bacterium in the intestine of the larger consciousness system. And we just can't tell what's the larger consciousness system has on its outside. It's finite. So it has a boundary. Well, what's on the other side of that boundary of consciousness? We can't tell because we're consciousness. We had to get out of consciousness to go see that boundary. Seeing it from the inside, we don't see anything other than consciousness. I know you've 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 said that many times before, Tom, in in the fireside chats and in interviews you've done with Donna. Um, you know, Steve's final question is is simply this: So, what is the point of everything being here at all then? Why not just stay in a state of nothingness? Well, the point is that when something does get started, let's say it, it is that uh, uh, emergent complexity, and it does grow, and it does tend to evolve, and as it evolves, it becomes self-aware, and once it's self-aware, it would like to continue being self-aware. Right? It has now a self. It has something to do. It's got a job, and what it needs to do to persist is to lower its entropy. If it doesn't lower its entropy, it will eventually go away. Its bits will become more and more random, and then it'll be right back to where it was in the first place. It'll just be potential. That has, you know, it'll just be potential that has the possibility of coming together to be something more. And then it starts over. So what's the point? The point is that the, once once birthed, once created, once emerged out of that complexity as a cellular automata, the conscious system wants to continue because it has become aware of itself and wants to grow, become more, see, you know, become all it can be, if you will. That's its challenge. To do that, it has to continually lower entropy. So what's our purpose? We're here to lower entropy. Why? Because we're part of that system. So it's just that simple. Things happen. When they happen, they persist sometimes. And if they persist, it's because they're trying to lower their entropy. If they didn't, they wouldn't persist for very long. So that's the, uh, that's the answer to that. And that's a lot of hand-waving, but it's like the best we can do because, again, we don't have insight to things that are outside of consciousness. Okay, thanks, Tom. Steve, uh, let us know if they these answers do not answer your questions to your satisfaction. If you want to get a little bit more clarity, please just uh, just feel free to contact us. Next question is something a little bit more clean cut, Tom. I think we'll be able to do this one. This is from Travis on climate predictions. The question is quite long, but I am going to read it in its entirety because he gets to the point uh, through um, some description. He says, I have a big, big picture question I've been thinking about for some time now. So hopefully I can come across clearly for all of those of you that follow Tom's MBT. Global warming is a thing most of us can agree is real. There are different predictions and models regarding the changes that lie ahead. So for this example, I'm going to use a broad and general analogy. In the last 20 years, we have seen a 1.5 degree rise in ocean temperatures, a further 2.5 degrees rise predicted in the next 100 years. Increase in ocean acidification will greatly affect the surface of the ocean and marine life. A warming ocean also creates even more intense storms and weather patterns and will basically start making life hell for us here on Earth. 
The next point to my question is regarding the psi uncertainty. You've mentioned many times in your talks that people have shown the way matter can be affected by consciousness. For example, the people at Pear Labs, Dr. William Tiller, and the effect consciousness makes on the pH of a glass of water. Or in the works of Dr. Masaru Emoto and the way that consciousness can affect the forming of ice crystals. The last point to his question refers to the rule set of this PMR and the bars our the bars of our playpen, sorry. You've stated before that as we grow up to become love, we may find the restraints of our rule sets will change. For example, the speed of light could be slowed down for us to, so that we could reach otherwise unreachable galaxies. By now, I'm going to guess that you're going to be aware of the question that I'm going to ask. But I'm more interested in the timing of it all. It seems too good to be true, or maybe it's the most common way that this scenario plays out due to it being an effective way of growing up. It seems like if we continue to grow up, and most of the population takes on and practices the way of MBT, that we will have the tools required to use our intent to lower the, the ocean acidification, like the pH in the glass of water, change the direction of rising ocean temperatures, or even, as crazy as it may sound, change the geology of the Earth itself to help fight the lost land from rising water levels, although that last one may be too far-fetched. So, current climate predictions do not incorporate the ability for consciousness to change or modify our environment. So, with that in mind, are we really in a better position than what currently, sorry, in a better position than what currently people think we are, simply because we, the masses, are not aware of our positive capabilities, but only the negative ones? I hope that made yeah. sense, Tom. Yes, it does make sense. And potentially, yes, of course, that's true. If we had a, a majority population, not even everybody, but even most of the people who didn't indeed grow up, who let go of their fear and their ego and became love, and we had a large number of these people. If that was the case, then such a large number of people, now we're talking about maybe uh, you know a few billion of these people, would have an enormous impact on modifying future probability. And indeed, those kinds of things could, uh, you know, make a big difference. And it's possible because all of the things you mentioned have a lot of uncertainty in them. There's a lot of uncertainty about how these things work, about exactly, uh, you know, how much gas is there, how quickly the gas will decay or maybe break up, turn into other things, ways that could happen. So there's lots of different paths, lots of uncertainty, and where there's uncertainty, you can make changes more easily. So, yes, um, you know, uncertainty uh, is kind of your friend in this case. The more uncertainty, the easier it is to make changes. So, yes, it would be. Uh, that is a factor. Now, whether that's enough, you know, that's hard to say. It depends on how much probability you have to move. In other words, if, if there's something that is, a, you know, 100,000 to one that's going to happen and you'd like that to happen, you may be really brilliant at your using your intent to modify probability and bring it from 100,000 to one all the way down to 1,000 to one. And you've just moved it 100 or orders of magnitude, but at 1,000 to one, it's still not likely to happen. So if we continue to pour more and more, you know, greenhouse gases up into the uh, atmosphere and the, the, you know, the probability then, you see, gets stacked higher and higher. 
So the higher it is, then the harder it is to move it. The more effort it would take, the more people who had become love it would take to do it. So whether or not we will develop ourselves to the point of being able to turn it around before it's too late to turn it around, you know, before the rule set uh, doesn't have much uncertainty anymore, then there's not a lot of wiggle room in the consequences. You see, that's the thing that you really don't know. So it's a matter of how quickly are we going to grow up and how quickly are we going to continue to pollute the atmosphere. Um, but yes, there's a race going on there, and we could indeed use our intent to make uh, rather broad changes if the population, as he, um, one of his uh, uh, kind of assumptions is that the population has uh, grown up and has become love. And therefore has uh, a lot of uh, power in its intent. We could indeed change things, but how much? Well, it depends on how much we have to change them. Um, Tom, have you, have you been to, or are you aware if this has already happened in any other NPMR that you, that you know of? No, you know, I haven't really, uh, I haven't really looked into it or um, spent any time on it. Back in the in the nineteen seventies, I guess it was in that Monroe Laboratory when I was first getting into this this business with Bob Monroe, he had us looking for Earth changes and uh, things that would likely happen, and we did that a lot. But the more I grew up, the less interested I was in things like that. You see, that kind of stuff will just happen. And if what happens, we deal with it. And knowing about it ahead of time isn't really a big advantage. Uh, you will get all the information you know to be wherever it is you have to be, you know, as, as time goes on. So I just live your life, uh, you know, be intuitive, and uh, you'll do just fine. There's really no point of trying to look into the future so that you can prepare for it. The kind of things we're talking about, you can't prepare for. You know, there's no way to prepare for the kind of uh, uh, earth changes that uh, that might happen. So, I'd say don't worry about it. Just uh, grow up and do the best you can, and everything will work out fine. So, if it turns out there's a big mass extinction extinction that includes people, well, that's the way it is. We are consciousness. We're not really avatars. We're not people. We're consciousness. And we will continue on. And we will have either this um, virtual reality reinstated. You know, you can go back and pick it up at an earlier time and get it going again. Or you can make a new one. Uh, there's copy and paste in digital systems. There's all kinds of ways to uh, continue our growth in virtual realities, whether this one self-destructs or not. So with that attitude, there's not a whole lot of point in worrying about it or, uh, you know, looking it up. We will create what we create. And if we create uh, a hellish existence for ourselves because of our uh, irresponsibility, then that's just the way it'll be. We'll live that. And if it kills everybody, then uh, we'll stop living that. We'll start off someplace else. So it's just... Uh, not worth a lot of trouble to think too much about those things other than, yes, we'd like to be responsible and stop polluting the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. And that's an important thing to do. 
But until most of us actually care about long-term happenings and are only interested in short-term profits, then it's going to be a hard thing for us to do. So we're maybe not grown up enough.